0: You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri. A community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org.
1: Our second reading comes from the letter to the church at Ephesus. Remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at a time without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace in his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be Thanks be to God.
0: I speak to you this morning in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in week two of our series through the book, the epistle of Ephesians. And if you remember a little bit about the the intro and the background I gave you last week, um, Ephesians is not like the other epistles. The other epistles, we know clearly that they were written to a specific congregation by Paul, most of the time. Many of the epistles were. And even though our Bible says this in this way, the earliest documents we have are missing those few introductory marks. And yet the epistle is, is uniquely Pauline. We know that this likely came from Paul, but because of the historical evidence we have there, it was probably a letter that was intended not just for Ephesus, but to be distributed widely. And so with that, that introduction, Paul goes in and he kind of breaks down and gives a lot of what we hear in Romans in a much bigger sense in a condensed form, sometimes in a little more uh, specific form uh, than we hear sometimes in those other places. So it is Pauline in the sense that it came from Paul, maybe by one of his scribes or by um, some followers of his, or maybe this is just some of his teachings that they pulled together and sent out all together. But we're not just looking at that. Through this uh, series of Ephesians where we look and, and listen to each of these chapters, what we're hearing is what life is like in the church. What Jesus has done and what he is accomplishing through his church, what he has created. And we're working with this big idea. The church that we hear in Ephesians describes a community that's living life together in the goodness of God. And so last week, we kind of looked, listened a little bit and thought about what is goodness. What does goodness mean? So this is one of those terms that don't, it's real hard to define. We each instinctively kind of know what is good and what is not good, right? And scriptures use this word tobe throughout, throughout the scriptures, uh, 700 times in the Old Testament. Uh, and at the beginning, if you remember, in Genesis 1, God said, and it was good, right? In creation, it was good, and it was good. Uh, it's not good, right? Things are good and things are not good. What is life like in the goodness of God? So we kind of laid out this idea to, to kind of give us some, some grips and some handles as we move through the series. The goodness of God, that term encapsulates the presence of perfect ordering and peace. Of perfect ordering and peace. I think I have, there you go. Shalom. This, this Hebrew concept of shalom, of not just the absence of war, but the active, embodied presence of peace and ordering. So last week, we again, we heard that this only comes through being adopted by the Father, wherein we are redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, and all these gifts are inherited with the church. And this week, we get into a very sticky situation, right? Paul goes right for the jugular. All those politically sensitive terms and situations, he just calls it all out. He writes it clear. He's not cutting any corners on this. And so this week, when we hear this, I think of, you know, especially in our, the, the current climate in our, in our country, in our community, among our friends, how is that different than what Paul is writing about here in the community of God? a community that is said to live life together in the goodness of God with perfect ordering and peace, how are we to navigate that? Or even in a more personal level, like, have you ever been stuck in a conflict with someone where, you know, you try to engage and, 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 or they try to engage with you, and it's clear that you have very different memories of what happened, <laughs> right? You start talking about it, and it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't do that to you at all. Like, what are you talking about? but they are clearly very wounded. How do we step into that, and why is it important? If you're like me, sometimes, you know, I I joke that with, with, uh, with my wife that, you know, there's one of two kinds of people. You come from one of two families. Either you come from the family that, when there's conflict, you flip over the dinner table, right? We're gonna deal with this now, all of it. Or my wife's family, that's how I came from, my wife's family, rather, they just don't talk about things, right? Maybe that's your that's you. so, so what happens when we have those kind of dynamics? Sometimes we're tempted to avoid those sensitive topics, right? And to stay away from them because we know that sometimes the juice just isn't worth the squeeze or we don't know how to enter into that. But what we hear today is that those tough topics have to be tackled one way or another. Remember our Old Testament reading? God is building a house, Right? God is looking for a place to dwell. And what we hear Paul saying in Ephesians 2, essentially, is that human schisms cause separation not just between us. They also alienate us from God. They also alienate us from God. So the three big areas of the text, right? Okay, so ready. If you've got your, your uh, worship guide or you've got your Bible open, we're just going to follow down through the text. All the points this morning come right from the text. So the first one is what? Paul gets real, he gets real specific. The politics of the text. The politics of the text in uh, verses 11 to 12. So listen to the, the terms he uses. So then remember at one time you Gentiles, right? Those who are outside. And he speaks directly to Israel. He uses terms like the commonwealth of Israel. Covenants of promise. These are political terms. These are political designations. These are designations that were very clear in the nation at that time. They knew what this meant. Or the Gentiles, the, the without Christ, without God, the circumcision. And he even goes as far as to use derogatory terms, right? The, what our NSRV tries to do, very PG-13-ish, cover those kids' ears, right? Paul literally says, those who the world has called the party of the foreskins. <laughs> if You might talk to Mike afterwards if you need some clarification on that as the joke goes. But he uses this derogatory term of the foreskins and those, who, and those without the foreskins. And then he goes on to call them the Gentiles, atheos, which wasn't just meaning without God. This was a derogatory term that the, the Jewish people used for those who were outside the covenant promises of Israel. He's pulling in all these terms and these designations to, to show how divided they are. And remember, this wasn't just some kind of disagreement that popped up over the last 20 years in, in the nation. These are, these are commands by God, right? He said say, Se- separated this nation from the rest of the people. So not only did they have good reasons for this, but they had divine warrant. As a matter of fact, in the temple, they, they, they found one of these signs not that long ago um, oh, there on the Temple Mount where dividing the court of the Gentiles from the inner court in the temple was a sign that read no gentile may enter inside the enclosing screen around the temple whoever is caught alone whoever is caught is alone responsible for the death which follows these are deep deep divisions and one which everyone held up and Paul's going there right He's got a community full of Gentiles and Jews that clearly have a dividing line right down the middle. And he calls them all out. It's a very political text. And not only there, but even when he talks about peace, then he's, he's going after the people outside this community, Rome. Remember the, the time of the Pax Romana, right? And so even when Paul claims that peace is brought about by Jesus, he's attacking Rome too and saying what they say is peace that's brought by Caesar, by getting rid of all the people that cause problems, that's not peace. Peace is found here because of what Jesus has done and how he has been executed and risen from the dead. This is the real peace. Not from an ignoring of those items that divide us, but by calling them on the carpet right here. And as he says in the text, and he killed the hostility that divides us. He drug it behind the woodshed and shot it in the head, graphically, right? The hostility that was dividing us has been taken care of. So there's the the politics of the text. And secondly, what we hear is that this cross, as I've already hinted at, is, is subversive. What happens on the cross is a subversion and accomplishment. It's subversion and accomplishment. We don't break down this wall. The destroying of the law is not to bring Gentiles into the nation either. It's not just to bring Gentiles into the Jewish nation, but it's to create a new reality in which both Jews and Gentiles participate in this new community that is the cross. A new community. One that doesn't gloss over the previous divisions, but acknowledges them honestly and common memory. See, life together in the goodness of God is a politically subversive act with a common memory. That's really what we're going to tease out through the rest of this morning is this common memory and this politically subversive act. So if peace between us has already been made in Christ and through His blood, then we don't need to be anxious about entering into those touchy, And vulnerable and challenging spaces around the conversations, around the issues that divide us. Rather, we are now, because of what Jesus has done, free to enter into those and repent and to move into a new space. We're free to be wrong and repent. He's killed the hostility that can continue the divisions. Because sometimes, at least for me, I feel like sometimes it's not safe to step in those spaces. And it's not safe to be wrong for fear that those will continue to be used against me. If I admit that I'm wrong, well, then they've got even more ammo, right? But we're free to be wrong and repent and step into those. So here's a question. All this turmoil that's going on in in our communities, in our nation right now, I can't help but read this text and wonder why do those cultural shibboleths, hostilities, and political insults and factions direct and affect our minds and hearts, the people in the church, as much as they do those outside of it. Paul stepped right in there and he called them on the carpet and he said life in the goodness of God doesn't look like life outside this community. Is this not a condemnation of the church? Is the fact that we so often identify not with the sacrifice of Jesus more than we do those political aspirations and those political visions of the good life over what God has told us the good life is in Jesus? It's right here at home, just as much as it is anywhere else. Could this mean anything more than we have chosen to be formed more by those news outlets and political pundits and gotcha phrases than we have by the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone? Paul called them on the carpet. So we have to call ourselves out too. So terms that he used, like those who were previously called the foreskins, and we say those woke liberals or the the conservatives or the deplorables, the party of the deplorables or the snowflakes or the libtards or the socialists, we have our terms too. We have our terms that had legitimate argument outside these walls, But now Christ has come, and we can step into those vulnerable spaces and acknowledge where we were wrong and listen with attentive ears the pain of the other side and understand that God is doing something so much bigger than any party could ever dream of right here in the community that he's building, the community where peace has come, life together in the goodness of God. And what that means is that throughout the rest of the text, eight verses eighteen to twenty-one, if you follow along with me there, we're saved personally, but we are not saved individually. Because we often think that we carry around this individual identity of which is somehow separate from those neighbors around us. And though, yeah, we're saved. So we can we can carry that around and attach to it whatever we want to. But what the text, what we hear here, 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 here is that we're saved personally and not just individually. 18 through 21. So he came and proclaimed peace to y'all. Let me insert that. We'll have that talk later, right? To y'all who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us, both parties have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon this foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And again, uh, Ephesians 4, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love." So again, we're back at our passage, right? Remember what uh, our first reading, 2 Samuel. God is is there with Israel, and they want to build him a house. And what does God say? Wait, I don't need a house. What are you talking about? And then we come here to this passage, and it says something about a temple that's being built in whom you also are being built together to a dwelling place for God, built on the uh, foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, the cornerstone. You know what this is, cornerstone? There's some a little bit of back and forth in the text. Sometimes it's it's a cornerstone and sometimes it's a keystone. These are architectural uh, 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 uh terms, right? The cornerstone is that which was placed on which everything else is built off of. It's what is true and perfect and right, of which everything else gets its bearings and marks. But as St. Chrysostom said, he said, sometimes it is as if, speaking about Jesus, sometimes it is as if holding together from above as a keystone, and sometimes it is as if joining the edifice from below, as if supporting the building and underpinnings and being its root. So sometimes Jesus is spoken of as a cornerstone and sometimes as a keystone. And really what I think it's talking about here is the concept of a keystone. Now I'm going somewhere, right? I'm not just, I'm not an architect, so bear with me, but this is important. Built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus is coming and is the keystone of which it all builds together. Keystone. So here's a keystone, right? Have you ever tried to make one of these? Maybe at like the St. Louis Science Center, right? You can stack up these things and, and that you can get, you, it, it's all like looking good, right? But you better have some support on that sucker because it'll crash in on you quick. And then all of a sudden you slip in that keystone. and What does it do? Tink, it's all there. It's going nowhere. It's solid, super solid. And of course, as any good Missourian, I can't talk about a keystone without talking about the St. Louis Arch, right? This is one of our favorite things to do in St. Louis. Well, I, I love it. It's a incredible monument, but also my kids are fascinated by it, right? We go to St. Louis every once in a while, and we barely start getting into the city, and they start looking for the arch. I can't see it yet, where's the arch? And at any point that they see the arch, they, they are sure to announce loudly what they see to everyone around them, right? This is an incredible, incredible uh, a monument. The idea for the, the, the arch, began as early as 1933. Do you know this about the arch? It's an incredible story. Began as early as 1933. Construction started in 1963. And on October 28, 1965, they were completing the construction of the arch. That morning, the temperature started off at 40 degrees. But the sun rose, and the temperature caused the south leg to begin to expand in the sun's heat. Right? So you see this on the south leg, and they built these uh, these incredible cranes that actually climb the arch as they go. You can see two of them on either side. And so this south leg, the one that, remember it's stainless steel, right? It's absorbing a lot of this heat. The sun rose on the south leg began to expand in the sun's heat, forcing the legs apart. So they had down to, they knew that at this particular time, they only had 45 minutes to lift this keystone up and get it in place before all hope is lost. They weren't gonna to have to start, start again and some other time with uh, getting this keystone put in there. So they started pumping water on the legs to help cool them. Here's a shot here from the top. So they've got these cranes up there and they're pumping this water up to try to cool down this, this south leg to keep it from expanding too much. And they were down to 45 minutes to lift it in place. Then they started pressing the legs apart 400 tons of force because it's closing in. And so they have these big hydraulic jacks up there on top. And also, notice all these workers? Yeah, if you watch the video of this, none of them are tied off. Total side note, that has nothing to do with anything else, but they're just up there hanging in the wind. Incredible, okay? So they're, they're, these legs are expanding. It's starting to get too tight. They're watering it. They're doing everything they can, listen, to make the structure fit to the keystone. 400 tons of force pulling this thing apart, reforming the structure so that the most important piece could fit in. The stability of the arch depended not on everything else that was there, but that keystone. The builders had to make the arch conform to the shape of the keystone, not the other way around. So what would I have done? probably took my cutting torch, right? Forget all that stuff. Let's just cut this thing down, and the the building, the, the monument, ultimately would have failed, right? They had to push this apart. These builders were hired men. They weren't the architect. The architect knew how this had to be done, and that keystone was perfectly designed for it. How many times is the call of Jesus on our life not fit the kind of temple that we wanted to build. How often do we come to something like Scripture, in this, like this passage, to where Paul goes right for those issues which were dividing the community, and rather than doing the same and reflecting in the same way that they did, decided instead to cocoon ourselves into a community that has been chiseled and shaped, trying not to chisel our hearts, but the message of the gospel or that which Paul has told us Jesus has intended to do in his community? I know I've done it. Can you reflect on any times when maybe at least your heart went that direction too? And maybe if the answer is no, it's kind of like that old joke, like every group of friends has one crazy person, and if you can't think of any crazy people in your group of friends, you're the crazy person, right? Right? if we often haven't bumped into an area where that is true of us, then maybe we're not listening to the words of Jesus and his apostles and prophets. So most of us, many of us either reject the keystone of life or are trying to reshape him to fit whatever it is we're wanting to build and add Jesus on as a facade plaque down on the bottom corner. It's not a plaque. It's the keystone. There's a big difference. So, for why? Poor K, as uh, some friends of mine used to say, my kids often say, like, I'll say something, uh, and they'll say, but, but why, right? But for why? For why? Remember, what, I'm going too far forward there. We're going back up. So then remember, for why? Verse 22, who is the structure being built for? Who is the structure being built for? Verse 22, in whom you also are built together, spiritually, ready for this? This is incredible. Into a dwelling place for God. God turned David down when he said he wanted to build him a house. Yeah, okay. He gave him some. He said, okay, if you really want to do that, go ahead. Your son, he can build something. But he's holding off on his home until the church. The church is the dwelling place of God. He has waited to, to make his presence fully known in the world until he's formed the church around the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus' son, a dwelling place for his son. So, we have to reimagine the church not as a place for parishioners to come into, but instead as the household where God has chosen to dwell. That changes everything, that changes it all. So, Victorinus, uh, an early father, would say, They, the church, have not yet fully entered into this unity, but are still being built up. This is not a finished thing, right? Christ is still building his, his community where the, uh, the fullness of the, of God will dwell, and therefore he warns and exhorts them because there is a deficiency. So then remember, Paul tells us in verse 11, so then remember that one time you Gentiles by birth, so then remember that you Jews, right? This has not come from a glossing over of our differences, but remembering where we have come from and what God has done. This will maybe help. I heard this this week, and it was, it was beautiful. Georges Erasmus, who is an Aboriginal leader from, from Canada, said it this way. He said, in talking about the divisions and, and how his community, the, these Aboriginal people in Canada and, and the other folks around, he said, where common memory is lacking, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. Common memory. Do we have a common memory? Or is our memory somehow different from that memory that God has called us into? So I ask you this, maybe at a more personal level, who causes you to ignore that phone call when you see him on the caller ID? Who causes you to maybe see him in the grocery store and you keep going to the next aisle? right who causes you to turn the other way how can you remember who you once were in order to rebuild how can you step into that place to where the hostility has been killed and that you can listen with an attentive heart in order to rebuild or it's not just personal right it's not just on the individual level it's it's collectively too it's as paul does it's political and before i go further into that those turbid waters right i want to remind you of something i want to remind you that i'm in your seat too and that i love you and that i care for the divisions that are there and the text today requires that we talk about some things This text doesn't stop the conversation on race. It doesn't say, oh, all that's gone. We can't talk about that anymore. No. Paul clearly digs up these divisions, and he holds them up to the light of the gospel. It doesn't stop the conversation on race. It requires it. So it's easy and tempting for me to say something like, just don't be racist. And everyone would nod their heads. We would all agree and I would have successfully managed to not offend anyone. (laughs) You see, our ancestors here appropriated Israel's story of the chosen people. The reason this room is so pale is because our ancestors appropriated the story of the Jewish people being chosen by God and moved into a place where there could be no peace and added hostility onto hostility. Mark Charles, who actually had a bid for president in 2020, said it this way. He said, we have a white majority that has a mythological memory of discovery, remember discovery, expansion, exceptionalism, opportunism, and community. And And we also have communities of people of color that have lived experience of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, Jim Crow laws, boarding schools, ethnic cleansing, genocide, Indian removal, internment camps, segregation, mass incarceration, families separated the borders. We have no common memory. And I think we can all agree that the community at a national level is absolutely in the pits. Common memory. And Paul says, life in here, it's safe. It's life together in the goodness of God where we can pull out those divisions and we can hold them up safely in a way that's honest and experience this goodness of God in a new way that those outside the community of Christ have no opportunity to. So if we're really honest, often this feels like really bad news for us. This feels a lot of times like like bad news because we mistakenly believe that if we were to get honest about where we came from and why we haven't experienced some of these same challenges, that that somehow that means maybe we don't love this country? No, that's not what that means. Or maybe it's, it's disrespectful to those people who are our heroes that came before us? No, that's not it at all. But God is building something new in this community in this church. And the good news that counters our bad news that often feels like bad news so often is this, is that when we are vulnerable with one another, God promises to meet us there. He's building a spiritual house in which He will dwell. And unless we're willing to go there, there can be no life together in the goodness of God. This is both personal and political. The good news is that we already have all we need through Christ, His accomplishment and promise to safely remember honestly to form a common memory that takes seriously the wounds that our brothers and sisters have experienced while also honestly living and, and honoring our history and past in our story. It's now safe to remember honestly because when we do, God promises to dwell in our midst. But this isn't just mental recollection. This word that Paul uses there for remember is nemoneo. I can't say it right. Close enough. Minimeo, right? I can read it. I can't say it. It's not just mental recollection. But everywhere else in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, that this word is used is memory that moves into speech, like Paul did, and action. It's memory that requires action. What tension needs to be brought out into the open? Acknowledged and reconciled. That's what Paul's getting at with memory. It's memory that drives us to do something about it, to move into those tense spaces and vulnerable spaces. And then he says later in chapter 4, he says, In this, put away, all, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. And just in the same way, Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, so then when you are offering your gift at the altar, this is what, excuse me, this is one reason we did the Decalogue this morning that reminds us of all these things. Uh, Matthew 5, so then when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has a really terrible attitude and doesn't like you for some reason, no, right? Has something against you. Only if you think it's legitimate, wait, gosh, no, that's not what it says either, has something against you. You listen to their story, the pain they experience, because that is a real reality for them that we have to acknowledge and move into. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come offer your gift. So, life together in the goodness of God, ready? Here's where the answer comes since I've got all the answers, right? This is what this means. Life together in the goodness of God requires common memory. Who we used to be, and now what Christ has done is primary. It's safe to create a common memory. But what is primary is who we used to be, who we used to identify as primarily, and now reshaped and reformed to fit the cornerstone To fit the keystone of what God is doing and building as the primary identity of who we are. So, lastly, here's how we do this. Number one, I have three things to close with. We remember who we are. In this text, we are the foreigners, we are the Gentiles, we're not the Jews in this text. We're those who were outside the covenant promises of God, outside the commonwealth of Israel. Those who were said to be without God and without hope, that is who we are. We start there. We didn't break down the wall of hostility. Jesus did. We didn't find God. He came and found us. When we were dead and lost in our trespasses and sin, remember who you are. And in the same way, that means our old identities aren't erased. They're there, and they form this beautiful tapestry of this new story that God is weaving together. Number two, remember what it cost in the particularities. So because of our new identity, it's free to acknowledge and remember the cost of what it took for our privilege and prosperity in our particularity, where we sit now. It's okay to acknowledge that those evils that our ancestors did before us, that gave us the possibility of sitting here, right, and the cost of what that took and our complicity in acknowledging that. So what, we, what we, you may have heard so much of today in many areas is land acknowledgement, right? Today, we are standing on the ancestral lands of the Osage, of which a treaty was signed in the early 1800s that pushed them out of this area, right? It's okay to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the pain and the death and the suffering that caused for other people, which makes it possible for us to sit here as we do today. But ultimately, we remember what it costs in the particularities and that what Christ has done to make us Gentiles members of his household. Because no matter what happened outside these walls, he's doing something new and creating life together in this goodness of God. And lastly, we remember who we are becoming and what God is doing. He's making one nation out of many. The work has been accomplished. The wall of hostility has been broken down. Peace is now possible. And where we are brave enough to step into this void, God has promised to meet us there, to dwell along with us, and to create a community where life together can be goodness the goodness of God. Who is it for you personally? And who is it that you have a hard time hearing from in in the, the, the conversations in our communities and in our nation? Because I'll tell you the truth, I've got those places in my heart too. Those other communities of people that when they start talking, it's like, I don't know. I don't understand any of this that you're talking about. But what we hear from Jesus is that it's safe to go there in this community. Personally and politically, who is it for you? Amen.